Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. We're talking about something I like a lot today. I'm so excited, actually. uh, So in my sort of zone of uh, pet topics. It's a it's a big it's an intersection of several zones. It really is. Uh and the legendary wardrobe of Marie Antoinette, who's not exactly who we're talking about, but she does figure prominently in the story. Uh her wardrobe has been criticized, it's been envied, it's been discussed to no end by historians and sociologists. Uh but where did all those glorious clothes come from is a bigger question. And in large part they were the work of a woman named Rose Bertin and her staff. And Bertin was a milliner who found herself basically the stylist to the queen. And she enjoyed a level of privilege that even royals were not really given at that time. Uh, and while there were certainly other people designing clothes long before Bertin, she was the first to really make this sort of transition from an anonymous dressmaker, although we'll talk in just a second about that term, uh, to a famous dressmaker, to like basically a famous designer. Uh, and this was all because of the patronage of, you know, a famous clothes horse. And a note before we get started, uh, you'll hear us refer to Rose Bertin throughout the episode as a milliner, which in today's parlance would mean that she was a hat maker. But in this time, someone with that title didn't only make hats. A milliner could be called upon to make dresses, to add trim and detailing to existing gowns. Sometimes like a gown would be brought in to be refreshed and all the trims would be taken off and new trims would be put on and different um, alterations would be made to make it look new and different. Uh, other accessories, sometimes even gloves and underpinnings were also within the purview of a milliner. Uh, I use the terms interchangeably as milliner and dressmaker. Some historians get a little bit prickly about that. Um, uh, because calling her a dressmaker sort of seems to devalue her position a little bit. To me, it's a very important position <laughs> to be called a dressmaker. But just so you know, like she's technically a milliner. That would be her title. Uh, I'm going to use the words interchangeably. I'm okay with that. And I won't even talk about, we don't go into it, although we do mention one person related. The millinery trade at this time sometimes had some negative associations with it of women working in it being also plying another trade at times. Like mm-hmm. It was not known to be the most virtuous um, occupation. <laughs> Suddenly this makes the Seamstress Guild in Terry Pratchett's uh, Discworld books really funny. <laughs> I mean, it was funny already, and <laughs> now Terry you Pratchett. having just told me that, it is even more funny. Yeah, and we'll mention one other person that was kind of tied to the millinery trade that will kind of also make that a little bit clearer, and you'll see the associations uh but we're not really going into that whole, the seedy side of it too much. Shall we get started? Absolutely. So Rose was born at Amiens, and that was a city about 120 kilometers north of Paris. And she was born on July 2nd, 1747. Her name when she was born was Marie-Jeanne Bertin. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about this time in history is that people would change their names pretty frequently. Uh, sometimes as a, a move up the ladder thing and sometimes not. But you will not hear her refer to that with that name again. So just heads up. Uh, her parents, Nicholas and Marie Marguerite Bertin, were not particularly wealthy. Uh, and in an effort to provide for Marie Jeanne and her younger brother, Jean Laurent, her mother worked as a sick nurse to supplement the family income. Because what her father made didn't really make enough for them to raise and educate their children, which was something they really um, 
prioritized. There's a story in Emile Langlade's Bertin biography that Rose, when she was still a child, became just completely obsessed with having her palm read by a fortune teller who was reported to be extremely insightful and was also imprisoned nearby. And so since she had no money, Rose allegedly starved herself so that she could bring food to the fortune teller in exchange for having her palm read. Uh, The reading was rendered, and according to the tale, the young girl was told that she would, quote, rise to great fortune and one day wear a court dress. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, that biography, by the way, which we'll reference a few more times and was one of the big sources for this, was written in 1913. And I, uh, he did a lot of digging through records to get a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of the details and the, the data about her existence and some of the numbers and stuff, right? But there is a little bit of flourish. So I, I immediately kind of questioned this story, but it's an interesting one to include. Uh, this idea that she was uh, kind of obsessive and willing to do what she had to do to achieve what she wanted. Rose's father, Nicholas, died on January 24th of 1754, and that left the family to survive as best they could on his wife's income. She was still working as a sick nurse. And the family struggled, uh, but Rose always assisted her mother whenever possible. She was not a girl that was afraid of hard work. So when she was only 16, Rose decided to move to Paris. She was smart and pretty and decided to use her charms to secure a position as an apprentice at a millinery shop. Uh, And the shop was called Trait Gallant, which translates to gallant stroke or gallant feature. And this shop was run by Mademoiselle Pagel, and it was already a supplier of accessories to the courts of France and Spain. So it was really quite a good position to get into. Around this same time, a young woman named Jeanne Bicu was also an apprentice at another millinery shop, which was run by a Mademoiselle Labille. Uh, and Jeanne Bicu would later find her way into the name Madame du Berry and set her own place in history as King Louis XV's mistress. Yeah, that's kind of one of those tie-ins of a woman who maybe was not super virtuous working in the millinery trade. Still laughing about the seamstress guild. <laughs> Uh, and Rose had not been working for very long for Mademoiselle Pagel uh, when she was dispatched one evening to make a delivery to the Princess de Conti. And while she was at the princess's residence, she made small talk with a woman that she believed to be a chambermaid. So, of course, it turns out that she was actually talking to the princess and Rose was just hugely embarrassed at her gaffe and she apologized profusely. The princess, who had found her to be just quite charming, reassured her that no ill had been done. Her identity had not been made apparent. Uh, The princess also promised ongoing goodwill uh, toward Bertin on her part. Yeah, that was a good friend to have made, even though it was accidental. Uh, And maybe definitely also embarrassing. Yeah, and the story is relayed in a way that she showed up and it was quite late in the evening and this woman was already kind of dressed down. She was definitely not in robes that would suggest her position at all. So that's why Rose thought, oh, it's just a maid. Just chat while we wait for other people to come and look at these gowns I've brought. And then it was not the case at all. Oopsie. Um, And the princess's fondness for this young milliner was almost immediately manifest. Soon after the two met and this embarrassing but uh, fundamentally beneficial event took place, 
A royal marriage between the Duke de Chartres and Louise Marie Adelaide de Bourbon was arranged, and Rose, at her new royal friend's recommendation, was called upon to make the bride's trousseau. She's like a huge get in terms yeah. of. That's a big deal. Yeah. This was a really lucrative bridal order, and it not only brought Rose into the favor of the royals, who would all need clothing and accessories, but it also elevated her position in the shop. Um, Mademoiselle Pagel made Rose a partner in the in the millinery shop. And from this point on, uh, Rose's royal patrons only grew in number. The Duchess de Chartres became a protectress. She, like the Princess de Conti, looked out for Rose and really helped along her business interests. Unfortunately, the Duc de Chartres also took an interest in Rose and uh, really pursued her very diligently in the hopes of a romantic relationship, but she really was not having that at all. Whether this is because she was loyal to her customer, the Duchess, or simply because she just was not interested in the man is, is basically unclear. But either way, she had no time for that business. Nay, was her response. <laughs> uh, and rumors of a plot that the Duke had concocted to kidnap Rose and take her away to a country house to sort of force her to become his mistress uh, reached the milliner. She found out about them, but it made her constantly fearful that, you know, at any moment someone was going to pop out from around the corner and snatch her and take her away to the country. That sounds terrible. It really does. Just trying to do her work. Leave her alone. <laughs> trying to make your wife some clothes. <laughs> Please get out of my way. So one day, Rose was visiting the Comtesse du Son about an order, and the Duke came and also made this appearance. She refused to get out of her seat when the Duke entered, and when the Countess questioned her about why she was acting this way, she was straight up front about it. She explained that the Duke had clearly forgotten his place in pursuit of her, and so she would not honor their societal gap. Yeah, she's like, when he remembers his place, I will treat him like he belongs in that place. Just kind of a, a a wonderfully sassy, and just to do it in front of one of his, you know, social equals was yeah. very cool. People get mad sometimes when we talk about how much we love the people we're talking about, but this is the moment when the <laughs> the switch goes to I love her. Yeah, uh, and the Duke was caught in his game in front of this peer, and he did not deny it, but he did call Rose a little serpent. Uh, I saw it was by the same translator of this biography. In one, he called her a viper, and in one, he called her a serpent. Like two different in, um, translations by the same person. So, mm-hmm. But the important thing is that he left her alone after that. Yes. <laughs> he kind of gave up his pursuit. Uh, and before we get to the next step in Rose's career, do you want to pause for a moment and have a word from a sponsor? Yes. Sweet. So back to Rose Bertin. Uh, as her popularity with the royal class grew, she sort of outgrew her position with Mademoiselle Pagel. So the Duchess was in the habit of assisting young women in their entrepreneurial efforts, and she had already given Rose her favor. So with the Duchess's financial backing, Rose set up her shop, Au Grand Mogul, in the Rue de Saint-Honoré. And in addition to bankrolling this enterprise, the Duchess de Chartres also used her position to send business Rose's way and kind of act as Rose's PR agent within the royal class, which she had already been doing to some degree. But once she had financially set up this business, she really wanted it to succeed. In 1770, the Duchess met with Madame de Noailles and Madame de Misery. And these were the lady-in-waiting and first chambermaid who had been selected to attend the new Dauphine, who was Marie Antoinette. 
The Duchess praised Rose's skills and personality and suggested that she be chosen to make the ensemble that the new princess would change into at Strasbourg border crossing as she stepped onto French soil and became a woman of France. Yeah, so just in case anybody doesn't know that, hasn't seen the movies about uh, Marie Antoinette, etc., when she crossed from... Uh, Austria into France, she changed all of her clothes. She changed everything so that she would emerge onto French soil as a French princess and leave Austria behind. And so Rose made that outfit that she changed into, which is a huge deal, because that was also the outfit that most people would see her in for the first time, sort of her arrival ensemble. Symbolic and also actually important. Yes. And uh, the lobbying of the Duchess de Chartres, along with similar pleas from other royals that uh, Bertin had won over as clients actually got the young entrepreneur her order uh, and the first exposure to her of her work to the new princess. So in addition to it being important because it was a, a huge imagery issue for France, it also gave the woman who would be queen her first taste of French clothing. So it was important on many levels. Yeah. So Bertin soon got her first in-person introduction to the princess from Austria It's entirely likely that the talented but also business-savvy milliner was just completely aware of the opportunity that was presenting itself to her. If she pleased the new Dauphine, all of France would be clamoring for her work. And thanks again to the high praise that her existing clientele gave Bertin, she was awarded a royal order for the princess in the amount of 20,000 livres, which is worth roughly $4,000 at the time. So that's in 1772. So that is a huge fortune, really. So we should point out that this rise to the favor of the queen was not like an instantaneous process. Marie Antoinette had arrived in France in 1770, and it was 1772 when Bertin got her first order. Uh, there were a lot more to come after that, though. Yeah, the uh, the Dauphine's clothing allowance in 1772 was 120,000 livres annually, and that's roughly $24,000. Very, very roughly. Uh, but about one quarter of that money, I mean, even in today's money, if you just told me you have $24,000 to spend on clothes this year, I'd be like, right on, high five. Yeah, I know, I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing. I would it. show up to work in a ball gown every day. Um but about one quarter of that expense uh, was allocated for, quote, ordinary dresses, like the dresses she would just wear in her day-to-day life if there was nothing important to do, which is highly unlikely when you are a Dauphine, because then three quarters of that was designated for extraordinary expenses, i.e. fancy pants unicorn dresses, like all of the big, you're going to an event, you're being presented at X, Y, or Z, you're going to meet another uh member of royalty from another country that's here with an envoy, any of those types of things. So that already is a lot of money. In October of 1774, Marie Antoinette's clothing allowance rose to 200,000 livres. Yeah. Again, it's a lot of money. That's almost doubling it from before. I mean, not quite. Almost. But almost. It brings it to, I mean, I'm doing quick math in my head. It brings it to close to 40,000 at the time still. I mean, it's like a million dollar budget now. I I could not find a good comparison of like what that would equal in today's dollars. It's really hard to compare dollar amounts. Well, and especially because Livre no longer exists as a form of currency. So tricky. Uh, But once Marie Antoinette became queen, she uh, in her first year as queen, she accrued an a debt of 300,000 livres in clothing expenses. And uh, the king did not actually know she was racking up quite that much. uh, But. She did it just the same. 
So the vast majority of this money was going right to Rose Bertin. And so this sounds incredibly lucrative, and it is. It was only a small portion of the money that she was making through her shop. So that where the Dauphine and then Queen went for her gowns and her accessories, that was where everyone wanted to go. Yeah, I mean, Bertin really had kind of become this huge um, business juggernaut in a way because, the, uh, you know... Uh, and we sh- I shouldn't, I mischaracterized when I wrote in the notes that it's like a small part of her business. It was a huge part of her business, but she was getting a lot of business on top of that. Right. So, I mean, millions of dollars in the very vague equivalent of today's money being spent in this one millinery shop on clothes by the royal class. Uh, and uh, we talked about Marie Antoinette becoming queen, and we should talk about her coronation gown because it was quite something. And it was a Bertin creation. So traditionally, the clothing choices for the male royals in attendance at a coronation ceremony would be in a style which evoked no specific era or style of dress. Uh, of course, neither Marie Antoinette nor Rose Bertin would agree to that idea at all. Yeah. And additionally, I mean, they kind of had this this room to argue about it or argue their case because a royal consort had not been part of a coronation since Catherine de' Medici in 1547. There had been several bachelor kings in a row on the French throne. So uh, there was more than a 200-year-long lag since the last lady in Marie Antoinette's position, and there wasn't a convention to follow based on that. And so the Dauphine and her designer kind of took advantage of that gap in protocol to go, all right, we're making a huge gown, and it's going to be ridiculous and wonderful. (laughs) Ridiculous and wonderful is right. The gown Bertin made for Marie Antoinette to wear was encrusted with jewels, including many, many sapphires, and also heavy embroidery. This made the garment enormously heavy. Uh, the dressmaker slash designer tried to arrange a special carriage just to take it to the soon-to-be queen. Yeah, I don't know that she was granted that wish. And Marie Antoinette uh, was placed on a, a special stand to to view the ceremony. And I don't know if, uh, you know, load-bearing issues were part of that because of this gown. Yeah, well, in gowns... But she couldn't really walk around in it. Yeah, gowns of this era were already extremely heavy compared to what we wear today. Yeah. But this would be extraordinarily heavy on top of that already. Heavy. Yeah, I mean, it would not be... uh, People probably have the image of the big, uh, wide-hipped, you know, the uh, pannier-shaped gowns. It's not uncommon for those to take 20 yards of fabric, just because of the many layers and the the shape of it is so wide. Mm -hmm. So on top of the weight of 20 yards of fabric is the weight of... Heaven only knows the value of all of those jewels and heavy, like, gold bouillon embroidery, which is very heavy on its own. Uh, and then underpinnings, <laughs> yeah. in case that was not enough. Yes. So it was a significant uh, achievement in clothing uh, engineering, I would even say. So as the crowds followed Marie Antoinette in style, Bertin was able to develop this rather ingenious way to just keep the money flowing in. She would take the orders from the rest of the royals for gowns that were similar to the ones the queen wore. And as the queen saw more and more people dressed like her, she would get tired of that and want something new and different. 
Yeah, so Bretin would design new styles for Her Majesty. You know, she also had a hand in in the hairstyles. So there was lifting the hair higher. There was shifting the drape of a skirt by bustling it a la polonaise, accenting with feathers, etc. And with each of these changes that kind of updated the style, the masses would follow and the queen would again want something new. So she kind of developed this perfect cycle of just continuous orders. Planned obsolescence of royal clothing. So smart was really an effective business model. Her shop stayed busy with an array of clients wanting all the latest styles while she simultaneously worked on fashions for the queen that were going to become the next big style and bring the same people right back to her for a wardrobe update. Yeah, and in France, and particularly the court of France at the time, to be out of date on your style was really an embarrassment and could really affect you socially, which is ridiculous. But that's how it worked. Uh, and Bertin normally visited the queen twice a week, and she would discuss new designs. She would review sketches and textiles. They would talk about the styling and accessorizing that was going to accompany individual looks. Uh, and so she really became her stylist in, in many regards, even though there were other people making clothes for the queen as well, if that can just blow your mind some more, hundreds of gowns a year. Um uh, but this level of access to the queen that Bertin had would normally be absolutely unheard of for someone outside the royal circle. But Marie Antoinette's obsession with fashion afforded the milliner these special privileges. And it also earned Bertin the nickname Minister of Fashion among Marie Antoinette's critics. She was really getting lambasted in the press a lot as being the source of waste or one of the, the purveyors of waste in the the royal court that she they had realized she had figured out this wonderful way to keep money coming in constantly and that she was purposely kind of uh, putting an expiration date on everything by making similar copies of dresses. Uh, and they they really kind of uh, lampooned her in the press. So it's important to remember that while Bertin was benefiting financially from her relationship with the queen and the queen's circle, the real benefit was this so-called protection that she had been offered by so many of them. So, for example, at one point, one of Bertin's relatives, who was a widow making her living as a bookseller, was arrested for selling pamphlets that satirized public officials in 1773. Bertin was able to just call up all of her friends among the royalty for help. So first, her relative was released from the Bastille, but uh, at her sentencing, she was exiled from Paris for five years as a punishment. And Bertin continued to campaign on behalf of the bookseller uh, after this this sentencing happened. And thanks to pressure from Marie Antoinette and other ladies of the court, that sentence was overturned a month after it was issued. So not only did this woman wind up being freed, but then she was invited to dine with the queen. And she became the court bookseller, which was a position that she held until the revolution uh, ousted Louis XVI from his seat. And in another instance, during a royal procession through Paris en route to an event... Uh, which had many carriages in it, the queen, seeing Bertin and her staff on the balcony of the shop in Rue de Saint-Honoré, acknowledged her dressmaker, which is a huge honor for, you know, a queen to point you out and kind of nod to you in one of these processions. And this resulted in every carriage after that of the king and queen also having to acknowledge her. Uh, apparently, Bertin spent the day basically curtsying to carriages. And on at least two occasions, the queen also arranged for Bertin to be led to a better seat at the theater when she was uh, when she realized that her stylist was sitting in a less than stellar position to enjoy the entertainment. So Bertin had really achieved a 
an unprecedented level, like an unprecedented rise from her beginnings to where she ended up once she had the favor of the queen. So to be granted these kinds of favor, favors, and especially with this much regularity uh, by those in the highest positions of society, was quite an accomplishment for this, you know, girl from Amiens. So other women, such as uh, Madame Dubarry, who we talked about earlier, had basically slept their way to the top of French society. Bertin had used her entrepreneurial skill to get there. Yeah, which really says quite a bit about her and supports the idea of how very smart she was. Uh, and as she cemented her place as a milliner to the nobility, she did uh, have a little bit of uh, that thing that often happens to people when they get famous really quickly. <laughs> She got a little bit of a superior attitude sometimes. Uh, there are tales of her telling clients that she was going to delay their orders because she and the queen had decided that a style should uh, not be debuted until later. And she would sometimes shrug off customers of lower rank by selling them fashions that were out of date, even though wearing them would be social suicide. Like there's one tale of a, a nobleman who is trying to get a hat for a relative or a friend who is from the country. And she's like, ah, sell them one of last month's hats. Yeah, so she really was just kind of saying, like, you're unimportant. I don't really care about you, which is a terrible way to do business. But she had so much, she kind of felt like she could make these uh, less than ideal statements to people. She also is said to have responded to criticism uh, from people by reminding them that her work was good enough for the queen. I personally have no problem with her saying this. Yeah, it sounds like she was pretty petulant about it, though. Oh, okay. Where someone said, ooh, you know, this dress, uh, this bodice isn't quite right. And she'd be like, it's good enough for the queen. Yeah. It's kind of a snooty patootie way to do it. I can understand it in point of fact, but... Uh, she would also turn down work for the wives of white collar workers. So like if a lawyer's wife came to her, she'd be like, I don't really need your business. Uh, this backfired on her, though, because one of her employees uh, set up shop for herself and made a pretty good living catering to the customers that Bertin cast off. And they became rivals to some degree. And after an altercation where the furious Bertin allegedly spat in the face of this former employee, there was a dramatic legal battle. <laughs> So her snobbery kind of bit her on the tail. So Mademoiselle Picot, who was the former employee, said that she was so shocked by Bertin's behavior that she passed out. Bertin countered that she had never behaved in such a manner. The initial judgment found Bertin guilty, but she appealed, and at this point the queen intervened. Uh, So not only was the previous judgment overturned, but Mademoiselle Picot was also ordered to pay the expenses that were associated with the appeal. So yet another example of where it was really good for Bertin to have all these friends in high places. So uh, because of her close association with the queen and the queen's circle, it is probably no surprise that as the revolution shifted the balance of power in France, it also shifted Bertin's fortunes. Even after the royal family was in custody of the National Assembly, Bertin continued to deliver gowns to the queen, although they were much simpler than what she'd been making before. And these deliveries, uh, it's worth pointing out, were definitely an act of devotion. So at the time, the milliner, uh, having lost her social standing in large part, was also having trouble collecting debts from other clients. And so even though her finances were starting to crumble, she still clothed the dethroned queen. Like She was still very appreciative of their relationship. Once Marie Antoinette was executed, Bertin, realizing that, that things were not going to go well for her, fled to London. She set up a shop there and catered to many of her previous patrons from France who had also fled. 
She did return to France uh, a couple years later, though, in 1795, but she had no career at the level that she had once known to go back to. Uh, her name was associated still with Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, and the styles of dresses that she really excelled at were no longer fashionable. Uh, the fashion dolls that she had once made as miniature versions of her fashion designs, which would be sent out sort of as 3D catalogs for people to see, like it was... Almost like if you picture a, a fashion doll today in a beautiful gown and you would go, I want that gown. Uh, they became popular as collectibles. So she was still making those and she was still making a living. It wasn't like she was a pariah, but she was really never able to return to the level of success that she had known during Louis XVI's reign. Eventually, Louis-Nicolas Bertin, who was Rose's nephew, was set up in her old shop and he sold linens and other fancy articles. Rose still owned the shop, but she was mired in ongoing efforts to settle all the old pre-revolution debts. And in the early 1800s, as she had gotten older, Rose would occasionally still sell small orders to royals who remembered her as a broker of the most elegant styles. But these really served to kind of stroke her ego more than they filled her pocketbook. Uh, while she struggled financially, Rose also offered her services to old friends as favors. She never really pressed them for payment. It's like all of her wiles that she had used to make such a huge fortune stopped being part of her her operating plan. Yeah. Uh, you know, while she was at the height of her career really difficult and judgmental by some people's descriptions, she seemed to soften a lot after the revolution took the wind out of her sails. And I think she saw a sort of camaraderie with these people that were in a, sa- a similar boat of like, we had this life and now everything has changed And now we're kind of all in this together and let's take care of each other. With dresses. With with beautiful clothes. Uh, Sadly, Rose died on September 22nd, 1813 in the village of Epinay, where she owned land and spent her time away from Paris. She was 66. And while she was certainly no longer uh, famous the way she had been in her heyday, her obituary did run in numerous papers. And there were uh, many kind remembrances written about both her style and her generosity, particularly later in life. Uh, although even before she became famous, people would talk about how, how sweet she was and how she was very kind. So it seems like she kind of became a little bit of a tyrant for a brief period when she was super wildly popular. Uh, and then that shifted back to sort of her, her more natural nature. Uh, her two nephews, Claude Charlemagne and Nicolas, and two nieces discovered that there were still many uncollected debts that were owed to Bertin. And so after she died, they did manage to recover some of that money for the estate, but it took several decades. Uh, they really had to, to work quite diligently to collect any of that money. In the introduction to the biography that we referenced earlier by Emile Langlade, uh, he wrote, The reign of Marie Antoinette was one of futility and chiffon, and if the queen did not create the office of a minister of fashion, the court of Versailles was nevertheless always crowded with hairdressers, dressmakers, and milliners, who exercised more influence than the king's counselors. Rose Bertin was one of their numbers. Yeah, she definitely had a a huge impact on fashion and happenings of the day. I mean, it it was more than clothes. She was making clothes, but it was more than clothes. Uh, And I just kind of love, you know, any backstory on fashion designers. Well, and the the first portion of the story, the basically going from nothing to being the primary dressmaker to the queen, reminds me of, don't laugh, uh, the Katy Perry movie. (laughs) <laughs> where we basically I did laugh even though you said not to. 
<laughs> we basically learned that all of her stylists and makeup people and people making her dresses, a lot of them are, are people that she knew from before she became really famous. And she kind of brought them to yeah. making her crazy outlandish clothing. And now they have makeup. careers in entertainment. Now they have careers in entertainment. Yeah. Uh, not, not so much. I with, understand that, that, that connection. Well, you know, and I'm also quite fond <laughs> of the Katy Perry movie for reasons that are somewhat foreign to me <laughs> as not particularly a fan of Katy Perry. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. That was a good movie. Tracy got me to watch it. It's not historical in any way, but. Well, uh, my friend Alice watched it and was like, everyone should watch this because you just get to see people genuinely love something that they're really excited about for an hour and a half. And, you know, I, I am thankful to Alice every time I think about Katy Perry. <laughs> uh and now jumping way off of this stuff. Do we have listener mail? We do, and it's about our Everest episode. Yay. We got a few, uh, we got quite a few emails about Everest, which made me very happy. Uh, several were glad that we talked so much about Tenzing Norgay, uh, because it's the Sherpa. He doesn't always get mentioned on the same level as Sir Edmund Hillary. Right. But to me, they're equal. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, mean, definitely. They were... <laughs> They may not, in social standing, particularly from the British point of view, when it was all going on, have been equals. In my head, they're equals. Well, they they both participated in that same feat, and they could not have done it without one another. Yeah, they shared, to my mind, pretty much the same exact experience. So you can't really mention one and not give the other equal credit. Uh, however, this came from our listener, Katie, and she says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I wanted to write to you and tell you about my encounter with Everest. I thought the best way I could do this was to copy the email that I sent to my friends on the night I descended from Everest. I won a competition for an all-expenses-paid trip to Base Camp 2. Here's what I had to say on the night I returned. And this is her email to her friends. Hi, guys. Hope you're all well. Just a quick update. I have just descended from 6,745 meters and am completely wrecked. I think that I was completely unprepared for how tough it was, both physically and mentally. And I certainly had more than a few moments where I didn't think I was going to keep moving. Out of the four competition winners, only two of us made it to 6,000 meters. Chia, the other winner, descended almost immediately due to pretty acute altitude illness. I got to spend a couple of nights at Everest Camp 2 at 6,600 meters before I made the climb to 6,745. I really wanted to make it to 7,000, but at that point, my vision was blurring in my left eye and completely gone in my right eye. Okay, as my aside, when I read that... I kind of had one of those, oh, holy crap moments because I had not read much about people's vision failing and I can't imagine how scary that would be. Uh, so back to her letter. I hardly remember anything as the air was so thin, but it was definitely worth it. I can see why people give up everything for high altitude climbing, although I certainly don't think I have the nerve for it. I almost lost my life every night in the base camps as you hear nothing but the ice creak and crack beneath your tent, not to mention feeling pretty sorry for myself in the freezing temperatures. That would also be me. I hate cold. Uh, I was lucky enough to spend some time in the camps with people who were getting ready to ascend the summit in the first two weeks of May. They spend months living on the mountain at a cost of about $40,000 for a single chance to get to the summit. Only about 20% of them actually make it. The rest end up turning back due to the altitude, the weather, or injuries. Speaking of which, I am happy to report I have only dislocated two fingers, sprained my knee, an infection in my hand, and a bit of a cold. Not too bad with my track record. I'll be in touch soon. And then Katie goes on to say to us, it was a spectacular trip and a once in a lifetime opportunity, but so dangerous and unforgiving that I'm not sure I would be able to either do it again or allow anyone I love to attempt it. Anyway, I thought you might enjoy this glimpse into a climber's life. Boy, did I. Yeah. Oh, that vision thing terrified me. Um, 
Thank you so much, Katie, because that's an insight that I I certainly wouldn't have. I don't know anybody personally that's climbed Everest. Um, and I, I kind of yearn for those. You can read the people's accounts, but yeah, I'm getting a... Well, and pretty much as soon as the episode came out, we started having people on Twitter that were like, hey, meet my friend who yeah. did some Everest climbing. Yeah. We also had a lot of people asking us to do a similar episode about K2. Yeah, which uh, we might. Maybe. I... They might. I think it, I think that might depend on whether it's going to sound like Everest again with a lot of the names changed. Maybe. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. see. <laughs> we'll see is the answer 90% of the time. Yeah. Not because we want to discount anybody's ideas. There's just, there's a lot. There's always so in it. Some things, particularly with episode ideas, there are a lot of things that we've talked about before. They don't always pan out in the early stages of research. You realize like, this is a road that's not really going to yield any sort of results that we can really work with. Yeah, the episode we're going to record next in this particular recording session being one of those. <laughs> so uh, thank you again so much, Katie. That was very, very cool. And if you uh, want to write to us and share your experiences on Everest or with dressmakers or anything else that uh, you want to share, you can do so by writing us at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can connect with us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History, on Twitter at History, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and at Pinterest.com slash History. If you want to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to uh, HowStuffWorks.com and type in the words Rose Bertin, which is B-E-R-T-I-N, in the search bar, and you will get an article that is top five Marie Antoinette scandals, because they do mention her ridiculous spending on her uh, beautiful and amazing wardrobe. So much money. If you don't want to spell Bertin, you can put Marie Antoinette in, but that's also one that sometimes people have trouble transposing the uh, vowels in mm-hmm. and can be a little bit tricky. So that's the scoop. If you want to research the, that or almost anything else, you can do that at HowStuffWorks.com. And you can visit us personally at MissedInHistory.com. We hope you do both those things. Yay! For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.